turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, our attention this morning, verses 10 through 14, the translator heading reads, the righteous shall live by faith. Guess, uh, if you don't know me, by the way, my name is Dustin Smetona. serve as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church. Love to meet you after the service. And if you're new to the Bible, that's fine. This really is a safe place to learn how to read and understand Scripture. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, feel free to punch in Galatians 3 ESV on your mobile device, or you can get up at any time and grab a Bible from the lobby. Um, but you follow along with us, Galatians chapter 3. Well, after almost a month away, we dive back into the book of Galatians, right into the middle of chapter 3, which feels a little strange. But just to get you back up to speed, the newly established church in ancient Galatia was being, being troubled by some who taught that faith in Jesus Christ was insufficient. This isn't how they would have described it, but this is how I would describe it. They were teaching that faith in Jesus Christ was insufficient to make one right with God. The Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, reacted strongly to this teaching. He has already laid out in no uncertain terms. This is what we believe. Oh, this is the heart and soul of, of Christianity. That it is faith alone in Christ alone that saves us from sin and puts us in a right standing with God. And any gospel, supposed gospel, besides that is no gospel at all. Paul has been beating this drum the whole time and he's going to keep beating that drum through the rest of the letter. Look, as we move forward here in Galatians, you're going to notice quite a bit of repetition in Paul's argument. There's some of that in our text today, but... He's going to, at the same time, keep peeling back new layers of his logic as the letter progresses. In this passage, we come across a word and a concept which may seem like it's new, but it's actually not. He mentioned a word back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And back there, he wrote that if anyone preached a distorted gospel, here's what he said, let him be accursed. Now, until now, he has not revisited that concept at all. But in these five verses, we understand that reference to a curse was a foreshadowing of this part of his argument. Why? Why are our works, the things that we do, insufficient to mend or maintain our broken relationship with God? Paul's answer, because the things we've done and left undone have put us under a curse. How are we to get out from underneath it? By trying a little bit harder? I don't think so. Let's see how Paul answers that question. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. I'll read and then pray. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, quote, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written in the law, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The very words of God. Please join me in a brief prayer for understanding. Lord, we don't want to in any way rely upon ourselves. We don't want to rely now on our intellects to comprehend what's written on the page in front of us. No, right now we are in desperate need of the power and illumination of your spirit that we might make sense of this, your word. We might take it into our minds and hearts, that we might believe it and cherish it and live in light of it. So we confess now we rely completely on you to understand this passage. I rely completely on you as I attempt to preach and explain in a way that serves my friends seated in this room. So help us. For our sakes, Lord, for your glory, for the lifting up of Jesus Christ, which is precisely what we're all here to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just over a week ago, I drove my family up and back to Utah to spend New Year's with my parents and my brothers and their families. And there's an experience I have on every road trip. I had it on this one. Perhaps you've had it too, you road trippers. I was driving uh, down the highway on our way home, and all of a sudden I zoomed past a highway patrol officer. And sometimes you drive by them and they're like looking down at their notes or their computer or something. This guy had his radar gun out. Immediately, my stomach turned into knots. I don't think I was really doing anything wrong, but I quickly checked the speedometer, frantically began to think, wait a minute, was I speeding? Did he clock me? Okay, I was going a few miles over the speed limit, full disclosure. But there's another guy going faster than me, right? Nope. <laughs> For the next couple of miles, I kept checking my rearview mirrors to make sure he wasn't coming after me. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because I style myself as a good, law-abiding citizen. But now I'm afraid that my status with the law has changed. <laughs> Am I now a lawbreaker? Am I in trouble? Is law enforcement now out to get me, right? 
If I get pulled over, how will I explain myself? I start going through my arguments. <laughs> Whether we realize it or not, our status is everything to us. What's my standing with my family, my friends, my church, my boss, my coworkers, my teachers? Am I on good terms with them or bad terms with them? Do I have their favor and trust and respect or do they mistrust me, resent me, look down on me, reject me even? Whether we're aware of it or not, our status with other people matters supremely to us. And on this question of status, there is none more important than our status with God. What is my status with God today? What's yours? Are we good with God? Or, like the police officer chasing the speeder down the road, is God out to get us with his sirens on? No more important question for us to settle in our hearts than what our status with God is. That is the central wrestling, the central disagreement of Galatians. The two major words in this passage, curse and bless, are words that describe our status with God. For to be cursed is for God to actively oppose you. It's for God to be against you. That's the simplest definition of what Paul means when he says to be under a curse. And to be blessed on the other side is for God to actively support you, for God to be for you. So, how do we ensure that our status with God is blessed and not cursed? Paul's opponents would have said, sure, look, you, you got to trust in Jesus, you got to have faith, but, but there's more. You escape the curse and get the blessings by keeping some of the Old Testament laws. And Paul is dismantling that kind of thinking and teaching piece by piece. Let me lay out his argument in just these verses, because he's doing this in the whole book, but just these verses. Let me lay out his response to that teaching with two statements, two points from this passage. I'll give them to you as we go. Point number one, why doesn't the law, why doesn't our keeping of the law participate in saving us? Point number one, because we are cursed through the law. We're cursed through the law. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, let's clear up a potential misunderstanding. Paul isn't saying that there's some flaw in the law, some law flaw. Sorry for rhyming that, not on purpose. Notice the very phrase of verse 10. All who rely on works of the law. The law has a very legitimate purpose, a very legitimate divine purpose. God authored the law. It's an expression of his character and his will. The law is fine. Nothing wrong with the law. It's what we try to do with it that's the problem. 
The law's purpose is not in any way to justify us before God. Paul has already made that point at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, that even before Christ came, God's people were justified by faith, not by works of the law. That's well established. He repeats it, uh, that point again in verse 11. Now it is evident, he wrote, that no one is justified before God by the law. For, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, an Old Testament passage, the righteous shall live by faith. Even in the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. Nobody was intended to be justified by the law. Justification at all times for all of God's people has always been by faith in the promised Messiah. Even when he was just a promise. And what follows justification, the reason justification is so important is because what follows it is blessings. If you're justified by God, acceptable to God, then God will give you what he has to give. He will bless you. But keeping the law can't justify us, can't obtain this blessing. Only faith can. That's how it's always been. Paul restates that, but here's really the new, the, the new point, the second point in his ar- argument that he's making. Not only can keeping the law not bring us blessing because it was never designed to, but keeping the law can't bring us God's blessing because our attempts to keep the law have cursed us. The words in quotation marks in verse 10 are a quote from the law. You see what Paul is doing here? He keeps quoting the law at them to dismantle their argument. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In this passage, it's a part of a much larger passage in Deuteronomy where God is warning Israel what will happen if they indulge in disobedience and rebellion against him. He's already saved them. The exodus has already happened. And now God's saying, look, here's what's going to happen if you don't remain faithful. You'll be cursed. Instead of blessing you with land and health and food and families and peace, those were all features of the blessing promise. Instead, God will set himself against you. And that will mean exile and famine and barrenness and oppression, which is exactly what happened according to the biblical record. The point is quite clear. Unless you keep the entire law, you are under God's curse. And if you fail in one point of it, you violate the entire thing, right? So many ways to illustrate this. You cheat on a test and your answer is, I only cheated on one question. It doesn't matter. (laughs) You're guilty. And the teacher and the administrators can rightly enforce the consequences. If you're reckless driving and you're like, look, I only did it once. doesn't matter if you only did it once. You're guilty. And any cop or judge can rightly fine you or sentence you to jail time. doesn't matter if another guy did it a hundred times. You do it once, you're guilty. Now, you can get away with it (laughs) when it's a teacher or a cop, maybe. But we can't get away with it before God. 
We are all absolutely exposed before him. He knows everything we've done, every thought we've ever had, every intention of our hearts. We cannot hide from him. And the punishment we deserve for our failure is his curse. Now, the curse isn't witchcraft, okay? It's not a hex. In its simplest terms, the curse means that God is against you. That's the simplest way I can define it. It means that God is doing the opposite of blessing us. In fact, it is his active judgment and punishment. That's what the curse is. The theologian and author R.C. Sproul, he famously illustrated the curse with what he calls the supreme malediction. He takes one of the most famous benedictions, which is a statement of goodwill and blessing. We offer a benediction at the end of all of our services. If you look at your bulletin, you'll see it there. Statement of a God-centered statement of goodwill and blessing. He takes one of these most famous scriptural benedictions and turns it on its head. I'm sure you've heard Numbers 6, 24 through 26 before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Beautiful words, words of blessing. But to be under God's curse is to hear the very opposite. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. That's what's meant by curse. And that is our standing before God. The evidence is everywhere. Big picture. War, genocide, divorce, cancer, car accidents, miscarriages, plagues, sex trafficking, government corruption. We're under a curse. The curse is God saying to us, look, you want it, you got it. He gives us what our rebellious hearts crave along with all the attending consequences and it is an absolute disaster. The curse is why every sad thing you and I have ever seen has come to pass. Why do we face so much sadness? Why, why is life filled with so much pain? I mean, how many people have puzzled over that? How many of you have puzzled over that? Well, look, it won't, it won't help to say, well, it's because we all had bad upbringings. Or it's because we didn't have enough good opportunities for school and job. It's, it's not because of critical theory or wokeness or greed or power imbalances or any other number of social, political, economical boogeymen that we would like to blame it on. It's not even because we live in a cold, uncaring, impersonal universe. That's not why life is so sad. Actually, it's the opposite. We live in a universe created by a holy, loving God, and we have turned our backs on Him. We've cursed at Him 
by disregarding and disobeying him. And so he rightly and justly has cursed us. It's right in the front of our Bibles. This curse, this idea of curse is not new. Right in the front of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they disobey God's simple law not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how does God respond? With curses to the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock. To Eve, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. To Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. We resist God, so he resists us. Look, I, I don't need any further proof that I deserve this curse than my own life from this past week. I could give you a rap sheet, give you a list of sins a mile long. Everything from unrighteous anger to laziness to selfishness to self-indulgence and on and on and on. I have not loved God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That commandment condemns me. I can't do it. Helpless, powerless. I suspect the same is true for you. And if that's the situation we're in, what good is a little bit of our goodness? This is how you come to terms with the absurdity of the argument of Paul's opponents. So, in light of all that, what good is a little bit of our goodness, a little moral effort on our part? Partial law-keeping. Should we just respond to this? by saying, okay, Lord, I get it. I messed up, but I'll try a little harder next time. Can that undo the effects of all the calamities and everything we see out there in the world? Of course not. Trying, trying to keep God's law doesn't count. As the great philosopher and theologian Yoda once said to a young Luke Skywalker, do or do not. There is no try. (laughs) He's right. There is no trying on this one. Either you keep the law or you don't. Paul argues if you try to keep God's law, you must keep all of it. If you commit yourself to keeping God's law, you must keep all of it. And if you don't, you're in trouble. The demands of the law are so great that it is preposterous to think that somehow we could fulfill not one of them, not any of them. And yet our failure to keep the means we deserve the curse. So, if that's our state, and we've looked at it soberly, we are under the curse, how can we get out from underneath it? Why should we ever expect to experience God's blessing? Why should we look for it at all? Shouldn't we just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Well, the curse isn't the end of the story. Point number two. We're blessed through Christ. 
were cursed through the law, but we are blessed through Christ. After verses 10 through 12, there are no sweeter verses than 13 and 14. You are cursed because you haven't kept the law, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through works of the law? I don't think so. Through faith. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born, God made sure that a verse was tucked into the law so that we would know that Jesus bore our curse. The words in quotation marks in verse 13, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, are a quote of Deuteronomy 21-23. Paul knew the law. Initially, that verse was there to let ancient Israel know that anyone who is publicly executed and strung up for the whole community to see, that's what it means to be hung on a tree, that that person had experienced God's curse. That was the initial reason, but not the ultimate reason that God put it there. God put it there so that after the cross, we would read it and understand that Jesus was cursed by God in our place. He took the curse of the law. This comes in the middle of all the blessings promised and curses promised for failing to keep the law. And now we know Jesus was cursed by God in our place. God tucked that verse in there so that we would know that our ticket out of God's curse and into God's blessing could only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how deep this goes. Paul doesn't say Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by experiencing the curse. He says, Jesus became a curse for us. In case that we still think we have some small role to play in reversing our curse, Paul offers us incontrovertible evidence. The curse is so serious that the only way for us to be rescued from underneath it was for the perfect Son of God who perfectly kept God's law to become the curse in our place as our substitute. Jesus Christ is the only man who dotted every I and crossed every T of God's law. He never rebelled against God, not in the slightest. He never turned his back on God. He never shook his fist at God. He never doubted God's intentions. He never nurtured lust or greed or covetousness in his heart. And yet, God treated him as though he did. God the Father looked at God the Son on the cross with absolute disgust and revulsion. God the Father treated God the Son as though he had committed murder, lust, adultery, thievery, lying, cheating, corporate tax fraud, prostitution, fornication, and every other sin 
that you and I have committed. On the cross, God the Father cursed God the Son. I know that's true, but I don't know how that all works. Oh my, but it is true. He did it for us. He bore our curse so that we could receive his blessing. How on earth could we possibly help Jesus in any way with that task? To be a legalist is to believe that in some way Jesus needs our help completing that task. Let us be very clear, Sovereign Grace Church. Only Christ and Christ alone could bear the curse of God, the full fury of the wrath of God that we deserve for rebelling against him. Only Christ could endure that and yet not be damned for eternity. For if we have to bear the curse for our sins, the only just thing for us to endure is an eternity of God being against us. That's what hell is. And anyone who doesn't seek relief from the curse in Christ will remain cursed by God. Paul's warning here, anyone who tries to rely at all on their good behavior or their keeping of the law will bear the curse of God forever. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. But that doesn't have to be the case. Doesn't have to be the case for, for Paul. Doesn't have to be the case for Paul's opponents, whom he's arguing against, trying to win them over. My friends, doesn't have to be the case for you or me. We can escape this curse Instead of the eternal frown of God, we can live underneath his eternal smile. Instead of hell, we can receive heaven simply by receiving the truth that Christ bore the curse for us in his body on the tree. Receive that news with gladness and joy. And then you'll receive something more. For there's something more to be gained than just getting out of the way of the curse. Christ suffered our curse to secure our blessing. That's this passage in a nutshell. Christ suffered our curse, not just so that we wouldn't have to suffer it. Christ suffered our curse to secure our blessing. Look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and I'm pretty sure we here are all Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
God the Father cursed God the Son in order to bless those of us who deserve the curse. We don't just escape the curse. We receive God's blessing, the thing we don't deserve in the slightest and never will. We receive what we would have received if we had kept God's law perfectly without stumbling in one small part of it. We receive what Jesus deserved because he received what we deserve. We receive the presence of God and the favor of God. We receive the promised spirit. The Spirit is the active and personal presence of God on earth. God wouldn't be seen among cursed people, would he? Wouldn't dwell among them, not for long, without destroying them. But we have a new status with God. Not cursed, but blessed. And it is faith in Christ, not our works, that gives us this status. In Galatians 4, Paul is going to say that the status we gain through the Spirit is that of sons and co-heirs with Christ, but we'll get there when we get there. I don't want to spoil that. It is faith alone, not our works, that create an inseparable bond between us and Jesus Christ. We've brought it up before. Look at it again. Beginning of verse 14, little phrase. So that in Christ Jesus, union with Jesus through faith, gladly receiving all that Jesus has done, intertwines your life with his. And you then become so identified with him that everything that belongs to him belongs to you. And the, the curse that you deserve fell on him instead. And then the promised presence of God, the Holy Spirit, comes to us by faith. As Paul repeats for us in verse 14, he already asked a rhetorical question about this earlier in the chapter. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's filling, he's answering that question now. We receive the Spirit of God by faith. The same Spirit who dwelt forever with the Father and the Son, the same Spirit who empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. You now receive him by faith, not by your works. And that, that is true blessedness. For the Spirit is God with us. The Spirit remaining with us is the sign of God for us. We sang it earlier, first song we sang. The Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. True blessedness is getting a, a status with God we could never earn. Oh, we so easily and naturally assume that God is like us. And that we have to pry his greatest blessings from his unwilling fingers. That's what a legalistic heart believes. God really doesn't want to bless me. He doesn't want to. But if I work hard enough for him, he'll do it reluctantly. Yet all the while, 
God looks at us and says, child, why are you striving so hard? Don't you see? When you weren't even asking or seeking or looking, when you weren't even asking, I sent my only son to bear your curse so that you could experience the blessed life with me. You don't need to fix this. You don't have to fix this. Just believe and receive my son and every good thing that I have to give is yours. That's the offer of the gospel. Christ does it all. And we, by faith, receive it all. Now you may think that this means Christianity is pretty easy. Gospel-centered Christians like us have been variously accused of easy believism. Just believe and then do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you do. Christianity isn't strenuous. It doesn't cost anything. Look, I don't want to leave you with that impression at all. Look, life is hard, okay? Whether you understand and believe and treasure the gospel or you don't. To commit to being a Christian is hard. Whether you're gospel-centered or a legalist. The difference between the gospel and legalism is motivation. The engine powering the vehicle that is your life. Legalism not only results in judgment, like Paul says at the beginning of our text, which should warn us, but legalism motivates us with consequences or rewards or self-assurance or pride. Those are the motivators, but the gospel motivates you with gratitude. Gratitude to Christ for bearing what we deserve on the cross and gratitude for giving us every good thing we now don't deserve. Look, something is going to motivate you. Even if you aren't a Christian, something is motivating you. What is the engine driving your life? Is it legalism? And you don't have to be a Christian to be a legalist, okay? Legalism, that it's all riding on you and your effort and behavior, or grace, that you receive many varied, undeserved good things. There's a quote often ascribed to John Bunyan, but the author's disputed. It doesn't really matter who wrote it. It summarizes brilliantly the difference between legalism and grace. It's a short poem. To run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Motivation here. To run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Through faith in Christ, we receive the Spirit. He's the wings. Okay. He empowers us to obey. And he assures us of our forgiveness through Christ when we don't, which is often, right? 
There is a big difference between the person who is sustained by gratitude to Christ and reliance upon the power of God's Spirit versus the person who is relying on themselves. Look, they could look similar on the surface. Both can attend church. Both can appear to have their lives together. Both could be good employees. Both can serve others and give of their time and their money. But underneath, vastly different. One can be blessed and the other cursed. Which one are you? I'm sure this room is a mixture. And the good news is if you are relying on yourself in any way, This morning, you can abandon your present course. If you're relying on yourself, you believe that you can do things that you cannot do. You can't keep God's law, or your own law, or somebody else's law. You can't, so give it up. The jig is up. Here's a better offer. Receive Jesus Christ. First, as the one who bore your curse in his body on the tree, and as the one who provides you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. Receive him as good news today and you will know true eternal blessedness life with God now and forevermore join me as I pray that we all would Lord even receiving Jesus Christ by faith isn't something we can do under our own power And so now we confess that we need you to give us faith in your Son. Even faith we are reliant upon you for. So give faith without measure in this room that those who have not trusted in your Son may trust him today. And feel that the curse for them is reversed. And be assured of the hope they have that that the curse, as far as it's found, will be reversed. Give that hope for the first time to people in this room today. And for those of us, Christians, who've been running hard, but feel that our tank is on empty. Remind us again that we can rely on you, on the power of your spirit for what we need for today. Remind us that every sin, every sin can be forgiven and is through your son. Reassure us of the forgiveness we have and of the blessed future that we have simply because 
we trust your son. Give us faith, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.